Greetings. Welcome to another edition of EDS at Union Now. Today we'll hear from the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris and Dean Douglas as they discuss COVID-19's impact on the poor. Dr. Theo Harris is a longtime grassroots organizer and currently directs the Kairos Center. She's the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and also a Presbyterian minister. As always, this conversation is available in a video format on our Facebook page. Like, share, subscribe, get the word out. Without further ado, this is our conversation between the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris and Dean Douglas on COVID-19's impact on the poor. Good afternoon. I'd like to thank you once again for joining us in this Facebook Live conversation as we continue our conversations about what it means to be church in the time of COVID-19. It is a privilege for me to have this afternoon in conversation, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who is the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and also director of the Cairo Center for Religion, Rights and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary. Liz, thank you so very much for taking time out of what is a very busy schedule for you to join me in this conversation. It's so good to, to be in conversation with you, Kelly. Thank you well, for inviting me. Good, it's good to see you. Uh, so Liz, I wanna jump right in. There's so much to cover in such a short span of time. And I'm gonna start with the big before we begin to uh, drill down a little bit. And that is what? You were talking about being church in the time of COVID-19. What does it mean to be church during this time? So when Jesus starts his ministry in Luke, uh, his inaugural sermon is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. What message do we need in this moment more coming from our church, not the church buildings, not within the church walls, not even sitting in those pews. But what message do we need more in this time of good news to the poor and, and mending the brokenhearted? Um, so we are called to, to preach good news. And what is good news but you know, a guaranteed adequate income, living wage jobs, universal health care. That's what the church needs to be proclaiming and putting into practice. So it sounds like in our Episcopal tradition, our presiding bishop has called us into the Jesus movement. And I can think of no better time to be reminded that we as Christians are called into a movement and a movement to follow Jesus into those places where as Howard Thurman said, people have their backs against the wall or perhaps no wall from which to lean their backs, which leads me to this. And the Poor People's Campaign has been very vocal in uh, helping us to clearly understand that in as much as this pandemic of COVID-19 has been a health crisis, it has revealed the ongoing, often ignored crises in our country, if not in our world, the pandemic of endemic injustice and gross and growing inequality. 
you and the Poor People's Campaign have talked about how it has revealed the fissures uh, in our society and in our country. Can you speak a little bit about that? So before COVID-19 hit, there were 140 million poor and low-income people in the United States, 43% of the U.S. population. There were 40% of people in this country who couldn't afford a $400 emergency. 60% of our nation couldn't afford a $1,000 emergency, right? Well, we are in those emergencies right now. There were 62 million people that were working for less than a living wage, you know, 37 million without health care. That hasn't changed and it's only gotten worse. You know, the, the statistics came out again today about the unemployment numbers. Right. Um, we're now up to about 22 million people who are unemployed, uh, even the official numbers. When you add it to the, the folks that were unemployed already on the books from before this crisis, that's a 17% unemployment rate, right? We are, we are approaching a, a great depression. We are approaching and what, we are, what, what our nation stood on before this crisis was was the crisis and pandemic of poverty and inequality and racism. And, and when you have a weak foundation, you have a weak response and it shows uh, how we, we, you know, the US response to this, this has been, has been abominable. And, and one of the things, you know, that, that really strikes me here when we're talking about uh, poverty, when we're talking about people, poor people, people who have not been able to earn a living wage. Two aspects of that that I want to drill into a little bit. Uh, the first is that, of course, we're talking about people with not only without health care, but uh, without any avenues for even receiving health care. And so when you have a whole group of human beings who have no access to health care, let alone adequate housing, let alone uh, adequate nutrition, et cetera, what this pandemic has helped us, I hope to realize, is that what we really do do to the least of these impacts us all. And so that the fact that we have so many people who were made so vulnerable to this crisis makes us all vulnerable. How, how do we respond to that? I mean, this is, you know, so incredibly true. I mean, our biblical texts are, are clear about, you know, our interconnection, our inseparability, um, that what you do to the least of these, you know, you do to God and to all of us, right? You know, the least of these is most of us right now in this, in this um, pandemic. It was actually most of us, the fact that half of the US population was experiencing poverty beforehand. And, and, and exactly what you're saying is if, if anyone doesn't have healthcare, if anyone doesn't have a place to shelter in place, if anyone has, has to go to work, even if they have the symptoms because they have no paid sick leave, they have no savings, their, their family relies on the income from their jobs, their jobs are refusing to, to pay them, then it puts all of us at risk. And so the cost of addressing these issues is far less than what we're seeing is the cost of having this level of racism, this level of inequality, this level of poverty um, in this rich, rich, rich nation. We found 
trillions of dollars overnight to go bail out the rich. Um, but who is being still forgotten and being made to fend for ourselves is the vast majority of people. And, and what also strikes me, and just what you've said again is emphasize this, that we have this now sort of paradox of essential workers, right? And I like to speak of them now as the essential non-essentials because before these have been people who are non-essentials, they've been marginalized that nobody cares about. So now these are the people that are risking their lives to make some of our lives more comfortable so that others of us can have a modicum of privilege even within this crisis. So they're the delivery workers. They're the people that are cleaning uh, in the hospitals and in other places. They're the people uh, that are in fact working in the grocery stores and in, an, in warehouses and a number of other places. Yet, as essential as we claim them to be, we are still treating them in a non-essential way. What can we do about that? I mean, so this is a really important point and I really appreciate you know, how you're talking about it, right? I mean, so the least paid, the least worker protection workers in the entire nation are who we're calling essential, right? Um, and I mean, that's, that's crazy. And what we should notice is that with the stimulus, the three stimulus packages that have been passed, there have been no provisions for paid sick leave for 80, 75 to 80% of, of workers um, because McDonald's and Burger King and all the biggest corporations went in there and lobbied and won. Um, there is no extension or expansion of living wages, right? So minimum wage is staying the same. There's still 62 million workers, if they have a job right now, who are, are making less than a living wage, right? So, so we call folks essential, but we don't raise their wages. And in fact, in many places, even doctors are having wage cuts in this moment, let alone, you know, Burger King uh, in the first week of the pandemic, you know, uh, uh, dropped wages by 10% across the board for everybody, right? Also, you know, when we're gonna talk about this question of healthcare, there's been no expansion of healthcare. You know, so we had tens of millions of people that had no health care and tens more millions who couldn't afford the health care that they have. They still can't. We all still can't. We have had no expansion of health care, no expansion of Medicaid. And, and many of the very health care workers that are, are giving their lives to us right now, saving lives right now for us right now, still don't have health care themselves. And, and, and how is that? You know, we have, to, we have to organize, we have to build power, we have to make demands, we have to, you know, be church. And so, well, good, be church. So this leads me to this question. So we know now that the fissures that were there, if we want to call them fissures, have now actually become gulfs. Uh, uh, and so the breach, has become a crevice, like a, a volcano earthquake crevice. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing, however, these fissures, this reality of endemic injustice and gross inequality, you know, it has happened on our watch, not simply as a nation who has claimed to be a democratic nation, a democracy, you know, so we know that to call ourselves a democracy is aspirational, but it seems to me that to call ourselves church 
has been aspirational because all of this has happened on our watch. So now how in this moment are we called to live into being church? We can't act as if we didn't know that it didn't exist before, but even say we didn't, now we know. So how this is an opportunity. Crisis is also means opportunity. What is the opportunity before us to live into what it means to be church, even as this crisis perhaps is not only an indictment on our democracy, but an indictment on faith communities? So, I mean, I, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, we just had Easter, we're in the Easter tide, we're moving towards Pentecost. And, and many folks have kind of raised like, what, what is Easter in these crucifying times, right? Um, right. And I think there's been some really powerful sermons and theology out there. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories from the Bible is that right as Jesus is crucified, right as he breathes his last breath, the, the curtain of the temple, you know, breaks, falls down, and the, the graves of the holy fallen fighter of prophetic leaders of the ages break open. That, that resurrection happens in the midst of crucifixion. That resurrection doesn't happen in beautiful, easy times where there's just peace and harmony all across the land. That happens at the darkest of hours, right? Mm -hmm. and, and resurrection is not about, you know, optimism, idealism. It's about having still faith that something new can break through and break through that old, that these foundations of injustice that have been laid bare because of a falling empire can be transformed into something that 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 has us all in. And, and this is a story that is as biblical as any story, right? Starting in the Genesis, start going through Exodus, throughout the prophets. You know, when we have plagues, they're, they're because those in religious leadership haven't been listening. Those in political leadership haven't been listening to the deep inequalities that exist. And, and, and so God says, I hear the cries of the people. I'm going to break through. I'm going to build a movement, right? Much like the Episcopalians are talking about this Jesus movement, um, a movement of people that, that can actually create church in these hard times, not in these beautiful, easy times, but in these hard times. And, and so it sounds like, first of all, I, I uh, want to say amen to that in the sense that, you know, the, the I think of uh, Black faith and Black faith in uh, the justice of God and in the possibilities always for new life. And this is a faith tradition that did not emerge in good times, uh, to, clearly, right? It sort of emerges in the crucible of slavery, yet you have a people that continue to believe in new life that is a resurrection, but it always comes through, it takes seriously the uh, crucifying realities and crucifixion, but it says that God continues to act, right? There always is a witness to life. Our responsibility is to join God, to partner with God, and indeed bringing forth new life, to partner with God in mending uh, the earth, mending our society of injustice. And, and this is the nuance that I hear you saying that we hear this theology that God brings on 
uh, these kind of events because of the sin of typically of particular groups, right? Mm -hmm. And I hear a different nuance in what you're saying is that no, it's not that God brings on the COVID crisis, it's that God is still acting in the midst of it. And so that it is up to us to, again, to join God and to find those moments of life and to, and to live into our belief in, in the Easter uh, resurrection. As a poet, and, and what we see before us is not the fault of God, it's perhaps the fault of, of ourselves and the way we have lived and allowed this kind of inequality to exist. Am I, I am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. And I think about you know James five, right? The wages you failed to pay your workers are crying out against you. Their cries have reached the ears of God. You have fattened yourselves in a time of luxury, uh, but now you're weeping, right? And just like to think about you know the these prophetic texts that speak. Again, not to, to God bringing upon death and destruction, but that God's people, God's poor and oppressed people, you know, crying out to God, God hearing those cries and carrying people forward and, and helping to deliver great and beautiful liberation, right? I mean, I think, um, I think what's also really important in, in this moment is to think some about, you know, what is faith? right? I mean, I, I went to seminary, I got my first day of systematic theology class in James Cone's, you know, <laughs> ST 101 class at Union Theological Seminary was September 11. And mm. folks had this kind of crisis of faith, um, many of my uh, fellow seminarians, because people had this belief, many people, um, that that faith was, you know, that good things have happened to people all along, and they're going to continue happening. But what you're talking about is out of, of oppression, out of suffering, you know, and, and I found out of organizing amongst the homeless, uh, living in homeless encampments, being homeless myself, that that we had a faith that was that even though all we had ever experienced was suffering, that we had faith that that we could we could live differently that God could, could wanted better for us and that we were in the midst of, of making that liberation happening. And, and, and I think that's the kind of faith, you know, is it the faith in Jesus or is it the faith of Jesus, right? And our biblical right. texts, our Greek texts tell us that those words in and of are the same. And so what if, if we're called in the Bible to have the faith of Jesus, which is a faith that, you know, at 3 p.m. on Good Friday, he gives up his spirit, um, but that God has of the last word, not the empire. And what if that is, is, is the faith that we have to have in this moment, faith of the poor, the faith of the hopeless, but a faith that can transform not just our own individual lives, but all of society. Uh, I, I, I hear you calling us to the place where uh, I think Jesus was, and that is to understand that justice starts from the bottom up, from those who are most on the underside of injustice, and that when they know justice, then we're on our way to justice. And more than that, I also hear you saying that the poor, the oppressed, those on the underside, those communities of people that we have considered expendable in this country 
are people who have something to teach us as church about faith and Easter faith. That's right. That's right. I mean, I think of Luke 18, right? The, The parable of the persistent widow. She's lost everything. She keeps on going to this judge. She doesn't actually change the judge. Those in power, sometimes they don't change, but she persists and she gets her justice. Not because that judge cares about God or cares about any other human being, but because of the agency of that poor persistent widow. And I think that's what we have um, in these times. We got a call on our elected officials. We got a call on our church leadership. And we have to recognize the agency, the power, the beauty, the abundance coming out of, of poor and impacted people who can actually you know, save our whole soul, soul of society. So even as these sort of essential, non-essential workers, uh, these people who have become expendable in our society, as is evident by this very injustice that we're talking about and inequality, it is sinful for the church to consider such people expendable, not only because they are sacred human beings created in the image of God with sacred breath of God that is all of ours, but also because they can teach us so much about what it means to be church and lead us rightfully into a Jesus movement toward God's more just future. And so what does it mean then? What is the church precisely called to do as we move forward to make sure that those who've been been deemed expendable don't now become disposable. What concretely can we do as faith leaders uh, in terms of standing in the breach to make sure that in, in the breach I'm talking about is the breach between the injustice of our society and the justice of God's future. What can we as faith leaders do to stand in that breach and make sure that we're on this sort of arc that bends toward justice? What's what's the concrete thing that you would call us to do? Yeah, I mean, so every morning, it's part of my daily devotional. I read the words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, you know, launched a Poor People's Campaign in his last campaign. And he said, as he launched that campaign, there are millions of poor, poor people who have little or even nothing to lose. If they can be helped to take action together, they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. And and I I think that says something about who we are and who we need to be and what church should be in this moment. Um, So the Poor People's Campaign, you know, right after this pandemic hit, launched a series of demands. They're, they're actually consistent completely with the already existing moral agenda that, that we had put out for some years and have done, you know, massive nonviolent civil disobedience around. Um, so we're calling on everyone to, to obviously sign those demands, advocate and build power around a moral agenda that puts people first, that puts profit second, you know, um, that doesn't open the economy up to the detriment of people's lives, um, that doesn't say that we should just get back to normal because what was normal uh, 
was 140 million people who were poor and low income. What was normal was racist violence. What was normal was the, the destruction of our earth and everything living on it. Um, so it's not a call back to normalcy. It's a call to move forward in bold and visionary ways around the demands of, of those who have little or nothing to lose. And so we are also organizing you know, people across the country to be a power source, to shift the narrative, to talk about the possibility, to say it costs us a lot more to have this level of inequality. It costs us a lot more to have this kind of totally flubbed response to COVID-19. And, and if we can find money for the rich, then let's find money for everybody and let's, let's transform society. And so to me, the answer is, we got to organize, organize, organize. We got to build power. We got to, we got to, you know, tell some truth to counter some of these lies. And we need to, um, you know, at the same time as we're meeting needs, we need to be um, putting out some bold and visionary demands um, because this is a moment when we can win those demands. Ah, uh, so so well said, uh, Liz. And so I hear you calling us all really to finally live into what it means to be church and that even when others may take their foot off the pedal uh, because they think that now we are in a safer place, we have to remember that there are people that are living that have never uh, been in a safe place. And we are recognizing that more and more through this crisis as those communities are being decimated uh, by this crisis. And the fear is that to go back to normal means that those communities will become further decimated. So it becomes a responsibility of the church, uh, if we are church, to make sure that that, that doesn't happen. I, before my final big question to you, as we are out of time, I, I, I heard intimated in what you said. So I think it's important to hear it even more strongly. A message to those who what does who want to as faith communities and as churches to open up. Uh, what is your message to churches in terms of being closed for worship? I mean, uh, church is not us gathering on Sunday. Church is not. Uh, you know, hearing some inspirational words and then going about our regular business. Uh, there's no way to be church in this time of the dual pandemics of COVID-19 and poverty and inequality without, you know, actually being in the front lines of calling for, you know, deep transformation in in terms of Deuteronomy, in terms of the prophets, in terms of the call of Jesus um, and resurrection. Um, and so, so we, we can't open churches back up. Uh, we're gonna have to call for massive non-cooperation with that order when those orders come out. And we're gonna have to say no, to be God's people in this time means to resist unlawful, unethical edicts where you have rulers like Caesar who try to put their names on the stimulus checks and have their name written all over this mess. And instead, what we have to do is make sure that when we open those churches back up, 
it's at a time when everybody is going to be cared for. Everybody is going to have a life that's full and that when we open those church up, we better have a society that looks a lot different than this one does now. I think I'm going to let that be the last word. There's no stronger message uh, to leave with than that. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, not only for the time you have spent with me today in this conversation, but for the work that you were doing with the Poor People's Campaign in the Cairo Center, calling us all to live into what it means to be church. I thank all of you online for joining us in this Facebook Live conversation. And I invite you to into an upcoming conversation on April 23rd, where at 1.15, where we will be honored to be in conversation with Darnell Moore, activist and author of No Ashes in the Fire. So I will see you again on April 23rd at 1.15 in conversation with Darnell Moore. Thank you and thank you, Liz.